Hey everybody, before we kick this off, I wanted to let you know that there's a video version of this episode complete with visual aids that you can get on YouTube or the Facebook page for Interverse. I like it a lot, put a lot of work into the video for this one. You could still understand if you were listening to the audio only version, but I wanted to let you know this was available. And if you're a Patreon subscriber, the extended version of the video will be accessible through the Patreon page for Interverse. Thanks for listening and enjoy this one. Let's get started. There's a universe inside each of us. The Interverse podcast is your portal to that infinite realm of ideas. I'm Chance Garten and I'll be your host as we serve up inspirational sound waves from the brightest minds with the highest vibes. And we keep searching for the empowering perspectives we need to create our greatest masterpiece of all, our lives. Welcome to the one within all back to the Interverse. I'm your host, Chance, and this recording is coming to you from May 16th, 2020. Throughout the course of this show, we've explored a variety of consciousness perspectives that demonstrate the interconnectedness of all things and challenge the dominant materialistic quagmire of a paradigm that has strangled the imagination out of society. I like to think that this audience has evolved past the worldview that we humans are just insignificant specks of dust flying through the void on an equally meaningless hunk of lifeless rock and that most of us are well on our way to seeing the mirror between ourselves and the processes of nature. While it is good to doubt what the priests in white lab coats are preaching, especially this year with the medical and pharmaceutical establishments working with technocratic big brother governments to push their very own worldwide 9-11 in slow motion, it would be a mistake to throw the baby out with the bathwater and outright reject science itself. That being said, there's a big difference between the study of universal natural law and the cult-like belief system that some have named scientism. Going into the etymology of the word science, we find that its origins are dualistic, with the Latin word sciere meaning to know, and the Proto-Indo-European root words with similar phonetics referring to cutting, dividing, and distinguishing. Unfortunately, most people who adhere to mainstream science aren't those who know, they are those who believe what they assume somebody else knows. And those somebodies higher up the totem pole are engaged with the cutting and dividing of observable phenomenon into tinier and tinier pieces with the immaterial being the first thing that's amputated. The truth is, spirituality and science are not only compatible with one another, they're the dual components that require balancing in order to discover true knowledge. So today I'm very excited about the interview you're about to hear because almost as long as I've been doing this podcast, I've been wanting to talk to today's guest about alternative science and what it can tell us about our limitless potential. I'm happy to introduce John Eck, a radical researcher and spiritual theory crafter who is a human vault of knowledge that you won't get in college. As the keeper of the Borderlands science website, Etherforce, John compiles articles and information relating to a huge array of subjects, such as revitalizing science with natural philosophy, qualitative exploration of the formative forces, experimenting beyond material reductionism, designing in harmony with nature, and engineering reality with psychotronic arts. He's also an avid experimenter within many of these topics, and it's going to surely take more than one conversation if we're going to discuss the wealth of exciting information that John's been stockpiling. John's current main interests include radionics, physical radiesthesia, psionics, brainwave and biofield entrainment, homeopathy and water memory science, and biodynamics, areas of research that bridge the gap between the mental and the material with the principles of shape power and the psychotronic arts. You can find his website at etherforce.energy. 
where Ether is spelled with an A-E at the beginning. So check the show notes for links to this cosmic library of Alexandria and start exploring. You can also subscribe to Interverse Plus on Patreon for the extended version of this episode at patreon.com forward slash Interverse, where you'll get access to the huge archive of extended shows for a small monthly donation. So I'm super stoked to be finally jumping into this material, guys, because it's unlike anything we've talked about on the show so far. And I hope you all are excited about it, too. So take a few deep breaths and prepare to rekindle your inner wizard with the intricate wisdom of our resident fringeologist, the passionate ether physics advocate and standard model skeptic extraordinaire, John Eck. Thanks for being here, man, and welcome to Interverse. Thanks, Chance. Great to be here. Very excited just to relay this information and to plant some seeds, hopefully. Yeah, it's going to be fun, man. Uh, I know that you have some ideas in mind of how to guide this conversation. So I'll leave it up to you if you want to talk about yourself at all and how you got into this, or if you want to jump into describing maybe for a first topic, what is ether and uh, how can people understand this as a foundational principle? Gotcha. Um, first, I'd like to describe the organization that I uh, represent, Ether Force, uh, just so people can get a little little more grasp on all the content that we can provide. Um, from the 1950s to the early 2000s, there was a premier scientific journal called the Borderlands Research Journal. Um, it was uh, from the early 90s to the 2000s and a little bit of the 80s. It was run by two individuals, Thomas Joseph Brown and Michael Thoreau. Those two individuals actually came to another individual named Ray who actually formed Ether Force several years ago. I jumped in about a, a little after a year of the formation of it and took it over after a year after that. But they've been the main community that's put out in print journals about topics such as, such as the Ether, of free energy, of UFOs, of mediumship, of anything that deals with how mind and matter might operate together, how they might intermingle. And so, that, that organization is basically defunct. There's a man who sells their material, but he, he doesn't do anything. And so they, they've basically given Etherforce, you know, the right to be the new borderlands, basically. So I'm trying to continue this legacy of bringing about this information that absolutely questions what we've been taught in college as standard science. So... Borderlands, uh, so Etherforce was originally began uh, as a response to the work of a man named Eric Dollard. Um, I can only talk about him so much without getting in trouble now. But Eric Dollard was the uh, first, first American man to complete all the Tesla's or the majority of Tesla's experiments uh, ver verbatim. He had several labs that were funded for him completely, and every time they would become completely defunct. Uh, he had no social skills, would blame everything on everybody else, and last would just collapse. So the main founder of Etherforce, Ray, and another individual, David Whittakin, I believe, they put up about a hundred grand for a lab for a dollar. It collapsed, and then there was a man I, who I am convinced is a government agent of some sort named Aaron Murakami. He runs a, the Energetic Forum site. He's come after me, tried to sue me many, many times, but he came in and swooped all the copyrights of Eric Dollar. Now this man runs an organization where he he's he swoops up people's the copyrights for everyone's works and then sells them for outrageous prices and just sell, sells a pipe dream to a lot of people. So my organization is a, a direct response of the schism that was created once this Aaron Murakami individual came in. He literally drew a line in the sand in this community. 
And the guys from Borderlands and this Ray individual came to this, to one side, the side I work with, and then Peter Lindemann and Eric Dollard uh, followed this Murakami individual. This man owns the rights to John Bedini's work, Tom Bearden's work, some other individuals we can talk about later, but there was a clear schism that was created. And so Etherforce is basically one side of it and we're the open source side. We want this information available and free as, as well as we can do it for everyone. Um, this doesn't need to be hoarded on someone's website where you pay $100 for a book to get some kind of information. I just think that's asinine. So um, in the beginning of Etherforce, we also had a website called keychess.com. It's no longer operational, but the idea still lives on. Um, we had terabytes of information for free about all the science that everybody just ate up and then we got shut down. Um, so the goal is to get something like that moving again. But our prime principle for, with Etherforce is the freedom of information at all costs. So I've been into this kind of uh, science probably since the middle of college. I had uh, a prime psychedelic experience at the same time that I took a Buddhist class. and. Whether this quote uh, means anything or not, or whether it's true or not, I think doesn't matter now because it was the catalyst that made something in my mind completely click. And it was that the Buddha was able to like uh, estimate the amount of units of matter, uh, units of energy in, in an atom or something along those lines. And it just blew my mind. And then I had a psychedelic experience where that was like the main thing I thought about. And just from that point on, I... I realized that there was something incredibly powerful about the human mind that can tap into how the universe actually operates. And the, and so that just made a, a switch flick in my head. And then after that, I started studying quantum mechanics and all this super strain theory and all this stuff. And after a couple of years of just reading all these books, like I could pick up a book and almost predict what it was going to say. It's a script. It's unbelievable. And it's, a system of material reductionism that's being presented to us that really has no bearing on uh, how we actually should be describing nature. And so after a while, I just became pretty irritated with the idea of quantum mechanics and relativity as being the holistic total explanations for everything and trying to reconcile it to just made no sense whatsoever. So I just kept digging and digging and digging until I came upon the idea of the ether and from then, uh, I kind of bridged into physical radiesthesia and biogeometry. And biogeometry was kind of the key word that introduced me to someone who showed me where Etherforce was. And then I just felt like home after that. In, in the beginning, Etherforce was primarily about Tesla-type technology, so-called free energies, that kind of thing. But there's a lot of other organizations that can talk about Tesla's work way better than I can. That's not my job. Uh, I have all the information available for everyone, but we've now kind of bridged into what's known as the qualitative sciences, the psychotronic arts, using technologies that can literally blend the material and non-material worlds. And um, with trying to understand this technology, I mean, we want an explanation for what's going on. So I've dived into all these alternative explanations for, for, for science and a couple people that have really just changed my world completely are one of them is Walter Russell. And we're going to discuss his work very shortly, but so what ether is. And so to answer that question, I need to make a differentiation real quick. 
the, so my website's Aether, A-E-T-H-E-R. There's something called the Ether, E-T-H-E-R. So it, from my perspective, Ether, E-T-H-E-R, is like a, is the primal physical vibrations, the first physical manifestations, the first precipitation out of the spiritual realms. And then A-E-T-H-E-R is more like the metaphysical source from which all this springs, something that's completely outside the realm of motion, while the E-T-H-E-R is the first thing within the realm of motion to appear. Follow me so far? Yeah, yeah. And I, I wondered if there is a distinction between those two. It makes sense to make Aether the, the primary metaphysical grounds because A is alpha, you know, it's the first letter of the alphabet. It's, Interesting stuff, man. And I'll also throw in that I wouldn't mind if we expanded on at some point how copyright itself stems the flow of progress and is a very outdated and completely insane concept. Yeah, big time. And uh, I'm currently working on an archival project with someone I'll leave unnamed at the moment, but uh, he works for a major, uh, major organization. And we're working on making a completely anonymous download site for all of this information, we're talking about releasing 20, 30 terabytes of data for people for free, scanning literally rooms full of texts that have not seen the light of day. It's like we're, we're and, uh, and releasing a lot of stuff like like this Murakami guy, like, like you know, whatever. But uh, copyright has been a huge infringement thing um, on our ability to share information with each other. For one person to be able to own the information for another and like no offense to like uh <clears throat> the like you know matt presti uh the a major walter russell uh he's the president of the uh, university of science and philosophy um he actually hounded me for giving away walter russell's books which have been on archive.org for years but they want to just profit from it and I, I like that doesn't make any sense to me either it's like someone's dead and you try to own their work. I get that too. I think probably his motivation is to fund and support the expansion of the Walter Russell yeah, archives and library. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you that that's just not going to work, especially with information that's that foundational to uh, understanding the cosmos. I, yeah, mean, I, I mean, Walter Russell would never have wanted that. <laughs> Walter yeah, Russell exactly. would not be cool with that. I mean, he was an illuminated individual, right? So he would definitely want it to go to whoever was ready for it. And mm -hmm. yeah, so that's a, that is a big point. I mean, this copyright thing is a stranglehold on, on the free flow of knowledge that it's gotta, it's gotta be reformed. Big time. And um, before we get too deep, I also wanted to make a couple of disclosure type statements so people can just have a better idea of what, what's about to happen. And so I'm about to give a whole lot of information, a whole lot of name drops. It's going to be a quick overview of a lot of the material Etherforce is known for. But I don't want anyone for me, anyone to confuse this stuff with truth. We're using words to describe stuff that's honestly super sensible, something that we can only experience. Um, I'm, if I speak in any absolutes using a form of to be, I don't mean to be doing so. I just did it. It's a habit. But I, I don't want to be speaking in any absolutes. I don't think of anything that I'm speaking of as 100% the way it is. These are just seeds. These are catalysts for your mind to help you understand and to think about things completely differently than what you've been taught. Because what I'm understanding is from the in academia, the scientific realm, 
And in freer thinking communities, there are literal mind viruses that exist that people are just regurgitating the same crap over and over and over again without using basic logical skills from the trivium and quadrivium, analyzing the things you're actually reading instead of just being a sponge to put something out. Critical thinking. So I ask for all of you to realize that none of you are your own beliefs, that you are separate from your beliefs. They form your perception, but you are not your beliefs. So don't be offended if I push any buttons. Just realize that you need to look all this stuff up yourself. There's no one who's going to hold your hand and walk you through these doors. All I can do is present this information and hope that it, it resonates with you. It hits you some way that you desire to dig deeper. And a lot of this stuff is going to question some long-held ideals that a lot of us are now accepting as truth, which is there's been a whole plague of ideas that have infested, infested the New Age community using quantum mechanics to base, basically to implant a materialistic ideology as something that's the ground for a metaphysical theory. It's, there's a lot of nonsense going on. But I, so just don't take anything personally and just be ready to question everything. I want to throw in, too, that people can actually hit you up for hard drive filling services where a large majority of the stuff that you're going to be covering will be in some way represented on multiple terabyte hard drives that, that, that you can send back to them. And that does cost money, of course, unlike the uh, dream of a free download website. But, you know, that's that's later on the pike. If, and it'd be better to have them on a physical drive in the first place because that can't be taken off the Internet. So they can hit you up for that. And also got to say, I agree with you about the plague of bad ideas in New Age spirituality. It's uh, another big component of it is really a connection to it all is the Gnostic meme, the belief of the material world as like this fallen lower state that your uh, physical body is somehow just like a, a meat puppet or a meat robot that, you know, that there's iconic forces that are trapping humanity here. I think that to really recognize our place in the universe, we have to realize that we're already in like the ascended state. These bodies are the perfect tools and the perfect representations of what our spirit is, which is curiosity and consciousness and, you know, the, uh, the will to make nature, which is already perfect, just a little bit more perfect through our art. And that's real. I mean, that's, that's my ultimate philosophy on all this. And I think any memes that are in whatever field of study that you're exploring that are saying something different, that are trying to diminish your potential and diminish who and what you are and, or make nature or make the universe in some way more ugly or uh, less meaningful, less, less inherently significant and connected to your inner knowing. That's all stuff that needs to be really looked at again. And, and you got to be wary of that type of thing. It's uh, those are the mind viruses. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I think I'd like to dive into some Walter Russell for our, uh, right now. Um, but before I mention his work and, and um, we'll have some images that can go along to help, help as a visual aid for this. Um, a lot, several of the individuals whose work I'm going to, uh, be discussing not all of them, but some of them share a 
a common characteristic that they were visionaries in the sense that they had some kind of etheric vision. They had some kind of inner sight that allowed them to see the dynamics of nature around them in a completely different way than is described in modern science. And that they tried to relay this information into their written works and in their models. So people like Nikola Tesla, Rudolf Steiner, and Walter Russell, they were people who had these visionary states and were able to bring this information into the physical. Like Tesla would have these daydreams and just image would pop in of a device of a, and he'd be able to build it completely 100% perfectly without any errors and just be testing like uh, the precision of uh, the bearings running on a machine like months later, like he'd be able to take something from his mind and build something perfectly. And so there's this inherent state of what Walter Russell would call genius within each one of us. And I think these men and many others were people who were able to tap into this part of themselves and then be able to relate as pieces of art to humanity. To quote Walter Russell, he says, genius is self-bestowed and mediocrity mediocrity is self-inflicted. Yeah, exactly. He says genius is our birthright. It's like every one of us has this ability to tap into source through ourself and we don't need any external means by anything through anything. And that once we can realize this inner ecstasy, basically from that realization and use that as the drive from every one of our material actions, then we put our state and we put ourselves in this state of just ease and flow and synchronicity and all of the above. And that's the state of the master of the genius. And all of us have that ability within us. And so Walter Russell was, he's regarded as the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. Um, he was Nikola Tesla's one, one of his good friends. And they were kind of like spiritual confidants with each other. Uh, Russell said that Tesla was an artist trapped in a scientist's body while Russell was a scientist trapped in an artist's body. Um, Russell had very little scientific education. So when his visions finally came to fruition, um, he had to relearn, he had to learn a whole new vocabulary so he could just write down what he, 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 uh, what he experienced. So Walter Russell, every seven years, well, basically every birthday he would go out in the woods and have some kind of spiritual experience, talking with an intelligence, something would happen. He learned something a little more. And there's something about the number seven, where every seventh birthday would be like a big shebang, uh, like a big cosmic knowing would occur within himself. And then on his 49th birthday, he had a 39-day mental dissolution from his body, meaning that he was able to visualize to experience the inner dynamics of physical creation while barely being physically conscious. He could eat, he could, he could barely talk. He wrote chicken scratch, like hundreds and hundreds of pages that became these two volumes known as the divine Iliad, which formed the basis for his whole science. Um, You can call it a form of channeling. Uh, I don't, it might've been, I don't know, but he was, able to capture the essence of a spiritual experience and put it into paper, put it onto paper. Um, Perfectly that, too. That book was not edited, not even a word. Like oh, I didn't the, transmi- wow. the transmission was 100% absolute. And what you would read as I've checked out that book, we talked about it with Matt Presti a couple of years back. What you read is exactly 
what was coming through during his divine illumination. Amazing gotcha. stuff. Yeah. And I've, I've, there's a couple pages available of like the actual writing itself. And it is chicken scratch. It's like, like, like how'd you decipher that? You know, but um, so after that, Walter Russell started to write books and try to present material to mainstream scientists. Um, he, he wrote books called, let's see, my whole top shelf right there has, has the books, but uh, Universal One, A New Concept of the Universe, Atomic Suicide, and The Home Study Course um, are his major volumes of work. And there seems to be a progression within it within his work, but then at a certain point, and I'm probably one of the few people that holds this position, but uh, his, I, I hold the contention that his wife, Lau, entered the scene as some kind of CIA or other alphabet soup agency disinform, disinformant because his, his, his language shifted, the way he represented his picture shifted, something was altered. And it, it just does not sit right with me. And um, modern comparisons to what we see with magnetic viewing of like ferro cells and other stuff, it seems to be his earlier work seems to be more in tune with what we're able to actually see. And that's the pre-Lao stuff, like the universal one. And so after we go through Walter Russell's uh, work, we're going to go through modern day Russellian scientists who are kind of revamping his geometry. So Walter Russell was, um, so like he wasn't a scientist by training, had these visions, but he was a master artist. So he already had the master mindset within himself by the time this master illumination happened. And so he would, he would build sculptures for the, for the elite, um, paintings. Like, I think he made one of the most complicated statues ever as like 20, it's the Mark Twain statue has something like 20 figures in it, something ridiculous, but um, he brought figure skating to to uh, to America, a couple other things. But he was a man that was able to bring the breath of breath of the cosmos into every action of his life, and we'll get into it. But he had his daily activities um, based around the idea of the breath of concentration and decentration. So you do really intense mental mental work for a couple hours, and then you have an activity to to let go or, or have a physical activity or meditate or whatever. And then you go back and you have this dance and within that flow, you just have this incredible energy and he was just able to do miraculous things, even into his old age. Is it cool if I go ahead and open up that Prezi? Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to actually have some visual aids for this material, which is a, not something that's been done very many times on the show. So if you're not already checking out the video version of this, you might want to pause it and hop to this timestamp point on the YouTube upload. Okay, so this is a kind of a mind map that I'm making for my website. It's very basic right now, but this is a basic structure for something that will have all the articles and links and links to books and everything uh, through all of this. And then Eventually, I'm going to have be offering courses for all of this. So this is basically like the beginning of a school you're, you're kind of seeing. So we're going to jump into Walter Russell's work. So we need to go over a few basic definitions before we do anything else, because Walter Russell uses words used in modern scientific context in a completely different manner than we're used to. So when you hear a word like electricity or magnetism or gravity, it is not what you've been taught. So 
One of the tough things with learning Walter Russell's stuff is you have to learn his language and then you need to step back and then you need to kind of compare it to modern science and then, and then things kind of click a little more. So above all, Walter Russell offered a metaphysical picture. He is one of the few scientists, or if you want to call him a scientist, who have kind of brought a picture of how the non-physical or, or spiritual realms can act as the driver or precursor or source for the physical. And so his basic picture is based off of something called the universal harp, heartbeat, something that's based off of breath, concentration, rest, and decentration. So our minds are electrical in nature. And when they're firing, when, when our neurons are firing, that's an electrical system. And electricity, as we'll find out in a little bit, is an effect. It's not the cause. And so anything experienced through electricity is just a simulation of some kind of internal knowing. So that there's this centering stillness that balances our, our thinking polarized electrical universe. And this stillness, that's where we can experience the totality of what we can know. That's where, that's where Walter Russell had his experiences. He was able to align with this balance within himself without these polarities in his mind. So his, this is the basic picture. There's one source from which everything springs from and returns. It's a very simple picture in the beginning. But the whole idea is that the mental universe is the centering fulcrum, basically, for our electrical polar universe. Yeah, so um, if you go to my website, etherforce.energy, there's a link for images that you can find there. And that brings you to our Pinterest account that has all these images in high definition. So you'll be able to see them much more clearly. I thought there'd be better resolution when I, when I did this. So the, in Walter Russell's universe, he has, he has two universes. He has a spiritual universe and a physical universe. And these images really help out. So source is that unchanging universe, the undivided universe is unconditioned. God is capital light. It's the mind, spirit. It's the universe of qualities. Um, it's at rest. It's completely still. It's outside of the realm of motion. It's actually the precursor and cause of motion. And that's the trip to get around through all these sciences is that there's something outside of motion, something that we cannot detect with our motion detecting apparatus and tools that is the driver and creating force behind everything. That's, that's the trip behind all of this. And the real easy metaphor for your own mental visualization is the classic teeter totter. Yeah. You it's have, a seesaw. Exactly. So the point in the middle, the, the point that the seesaw balances on is unmoving and unchanging. It appears to be invisible to the observer because they're too busy watching the kids on the left and right side going up and down. And then that's, that's where the actual source of the motion is without that fulcrum, there could be no uh, rhythmic balanced interchange as what Russell yeah, calls it. Yeah, precisely. And that's one of my favorite phrases. And we'll, we'll describe that more in depth once uh, we go over vortex motion and stuff like that. At least in Walter Russell's paradigm, just view the spiritual universe 
Um, he uses the word God. I'm not a big fan of that word, but I'll, I'll probably use the word source when I can. But it's like Chance said, it's, it's this neutral center. It's this fulcrum of, of a seesaw that the plank of the seesaw is our physical universe. Our physical universe only exists because of polarity. Without polarity, we can't have physical expression. And that's the big point to take away from that. And I think when you look at that as a, we're talking about the motion of physical objects and how the teeter-totter uh, can be a metaphor for that. But also you were, you started off talking about how thinking is part of this dynamic and a, a way of conceptualizing that, or at the very least starting to ask the right questions would be, well, whenever you are thinking to yourself, like I need to do this, who's the one telling you that you need to do it? And who's the I that's going to go do it. Those are the two sides of the teeter totter. But the thing that created that thought out of nothing you know the images and thoughts just pop into your head out of nowhere mm -hmm. that's the stillness that's the knowing part of yourself and so yeah, it's yeah. the one guiding the direction of the thoughts and generating them exactly yeah so the uh, physical universe um is in walter russell's view and is compatible to a certain degree with what's with what's known as the electrical universe if we have time we'll get into that but our senses, our five physical senses are only designed to detect motion on various scales. No matter what, though, it's just motion. Um, it's, they're electrical radar detectors. That's all they are. They're extensions and technology is just an extension of that. So no matter what we devise in terms of measuring apparatus and tools that they're just designed to measure movement electricity, electromagnetism, electromagnetism in specific. But so our senses are kind of deceived in, into tricking us, or they're tricking us into thinking that we have the full picture. They're just picking up all these electrical signals around us and then giving us this holistic uh, perspective. We are deceived by our senses and what Russell and all these other geniuses that, uh, that I had mentioned, they were able to... To tap into that, they were able to find this inner knowing within themselves that was outside of this electromagnetic motion. They were able to get this information that is not electric in nature. And that happens by decentrating the mind. So concentration is, uh, is uh, basically too much electrical stimulation, and decentration is the, the avoidance of it. And so, after, so states of extreme decentration will allow you to open up to this cosmic flow of information. I think that experienced meditators have probably felt this happen before, or also sometimes psychedelic trips, although those are usually an over-electrification. Sometimes there's a, a reduction in brain activity depending on the substance you're looking at. So there's, mm -hmm. there's interesting parallels in those worlds and uh, the knowing that mm -hmm. you can feel in those decentrated states, it's very akin to old shamanic techniques where the, the whole goal for being able to see past the material or the whole, the whole method is the like defocalization in a sense, the, the loosening mm -hmm. instead of the tightening of the focus, which like you've been saying, it's the exact opposite of the tactic that materialist reductionist science goes for. Mm -hmm. Precisely. So Walter Russell's, paradigm is based on vortex motion 
and various states of compression and expansion. And in general, his whole picture describes how cubic systems with spheres inside of themselves overlap with other cubic systems with spheres inside of themselves. And those intersections of those spheres are systems of mirrors and lenses that focuses or rare facts, a universal medium through vortex motion. So it's a system of pressure mediation of spherical pressure gradients that intersect each other. And to describe what happens within those intersections, we need vortex motion. Is this kind of similar to the flower of life type geometry? That's kind of what I'm imagining here as I try to grapple with this higher level thing that I have not understood before exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, the flower of life, um, I have mixed uh, opinions on that, but I think that's actually just represents a state of compression. And uh, as we might have time later, there's a, a anthroposophical geometrician named Frank Chester who came up with alternative flower of life, which is an expansive type of feeling uh, geometry. And you can have them side by side and it's completely different feeling, but it's just circles in the way you have them oriented around themselves. Yeah. And my, my comment, I was kind of imagining a 3D version of it instead of the flat 2D version. I don't know if that mm-hmm. make, makes it a little closer to the mark, but yeah. very, very interesting what we can learn from geometry. And I'm, you know, hoping at some point to also get a little bit of explanation on the concept of shape, <laughs> shape magic that you're into because uh, that, yeah, that's yeah, really so, cool stuff. Yeah, but so you can I- go there whenever. Yeah, we'll get there. The reason I'm doing Walter Russell and we'll do Steiner next is so we have a foundation for what shape is being a filter or antenna for. So later in the talk, uh, the basis for a lot of the psychotronic arts like radionics and radiesthesia and biogeometry is that shape itself is like a circuit, but not a circuit for electricity, for this etheric life-giving medium. And shape can act as a filter or a prism that allows different qualities to emerge from this universal medium. And if those qualities are strong enough, they have the ability to affect physical systems. Is that sort of similar to the way color works, just on a different? Yeah, well, color is part of it. And a lot, a lot of it is understanding that color, sound, number, ratio, they're all harmonics of each other. Uh, our senses and everything above and below are part of the scale invariant chain. And so what we'll talk about is that there's qualities in in information that have like the idea of gold that can be found in a number and a color uh, in a ratio and many ratios in shapes, a whole bunch of things. So that probably doesn't make too much sense right now, but it will later. It might, because we have talked about on an occult, perspective the correlations between all those things but now we're going to be looking at the actual or whenever we get to it and as we go we'll be set laying the foundation for why this is the case instead of just you know putting it down as a principle yeah yeah exactly yeah um so i, I really i, I want to get through with the walter russell stuff and just like breeze through it so we're just going to go through a bunch of pictures so he's all about types of vortex motion yeah, so there, there's two types of uh, main vortex motion. There's centripetal, which is like you're going down the funnel of a tornado. And as you're going down the funnel of a tornado, you're speeding up. It's getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until you hit this maximum point of compression. 
this maximum component of compression and Walter Russell's model, I'll be calling that the anode. That can also be elements like carbon, silicon. Um, it's also suns in this model, stars. And then there's the opposite of that, of the centrifugal uh, vortex motion. And that's the exact opposite. That's going from the singularity, if you will, of the tornado and spiraling outwards um, is degenerating. That's what we know as radiation. And as we'll find out later, technically, that's what electrical electromagnetism is. And then there's a precursor to that called the dielectric field, which has the centripetal type geometry. And so in his model, gravity is this shaft or this equilibrium shaft in the middle. And that maximum gravity is that flow of motion, a vortex motion towards this maximum point of compression. And then space is the exact opposite. It's the maximum state of expansion. So what the vortex motion is doing is that there's this universal uh, medium that Walter Russell called the still magnetic white light. That's what the spiritual universe is made of. And the spiritual universe is this one media and that every element that we experience, every physical manifestation is just different pressure gradients, different angles, different phases of this universal medium. So Walter Russell came up with these periodic tables that will just blow your freaking mind. Um, they're based off of harmonics. Of, they're musical. They're based off of octaves. So this was his, some of his original charts that he sent to scientists around the world. Um, so he had two versions of it. One was based off of 10 octaves. One was based off of nine octaves. Um, a lot of people are saying the nine octave is probably more accurate. So there's <clears throat> a lot of strange things to notice about this. It's a spiral. This looks nothing like the normal periodic table. You can see it's broken down into octaves. And that that middle line, that equilibrium line, that's where the inert gases are. In his model, the inert gases are these two-dimensional thought rings that whose job is to become three-dimensional spheres by through the transformation of a of a toroid of a donut, basically. And it's their job to take the idea from the spiritual universe and make it a physical vibration and relay that to the other elements in its octave. So on either side of, of the inert gases. Are those what they call the noble gases? Yeah, those are the noble gases, argon, krypton. Those are things that don't interact with other elements. There's something weird about their, they don't want to share electrical activity with anything. That is interesting. I actually did not know that about I, I knew that he had put some importance on the noble gases in his restructuring of the periodic table. But I think people will probably want to pause the video and just look at the these charts. And because that's such a thing that's drilled into your head in high school chemistry and beyond, like that this is the this periodic table is everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this gets even crazier. So he, he literally called the inert gases the Akashic records. And so remember the role I just described is that their job is to bring information, ideas, qualities, spiritual experience from 
the plane of a cube, which I'll get into the cubes in a second, and relay that to all other forms of vibratory matter, basically. And so those are all on the equilibrium line. Now, if you go to the apexes, the, uh, the amplitudes of the wave, you'll th see things like carbon, silicon, iron, rhodium. Those are the most stable elements. And in his model, those are the elements that are closest to being a complete sphere. So those are like the fulfilled prophecies of what the inert gas wants to do. Um, become completely physical. And that those are also like suns. Those are maximum points of compression. <clears throat> and then in the troughs. And those are things uh, that yeah, yeah. life is made out of a lot of these things. And Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the trippiest thing about all this is if you scroll up to a little, the middle of the fourth octave, that's the fourth octave is helium. So there's all these other octaves that precede helium. And so he calls these the nebulous space gases. So he says there's at least 21 pre-hydrogen elements. And so <clears throat> with this periodic table, he detected uh, the presence of tritium and deuterium, two types of heavy water, and I believe radium and plutonium. I know I'm getting one of those wrong, but uh, he was able to protect several elements, their existence, not their physical presence, but their existence with his periodic table before they were uh, officially recognized. And then once they were recognized, like no one said anything about Walter Russell. That's crazy. Yeah. And so, yeah, super crazy. And so with, he has di different versions of these. And then, so like with this one, it's easier to see, but on either side of the wave, you can kind of match up different elements and see their, uh, their stability or relativity or, or how they're going to react with each other, basically. Um, and it's just like pairing them. It's like if they have an equal disbursement uh, or like equal number of spaces from the equilibrium line, then they'll have a better, better chance of bonding with each other. And what's amazing is like how beautiful some of these charts oh, are. I mean, there's, their art. It's incredible. Their art. It's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It, and just, yeah, he was an artist by training it. I mean, it shows. It's, so, it's amazing. He found so many different structures to chart these like different mm -hmm. ways to show all the different uh, aspects of what this progression is like designed out of. And he's done it in four, at least four different ways that we've looked at here. And, and all of them give you a slightly be better angle on one aspect or another. It's really cool. Big, big time. And so his system is musical in a sense. And he says creation is just a nine stringed harp. It's all these different, hopes, different notes just being strung on one cosmic string on the cosmic monochord. It's just all these different notes. Yeah, there's so, so much Russell stuff that could be discussed in that yeah, <laughs> it's hard yeah, to it's overview just, it. It's ridiculous. And so when I talked about spheres a little bit ago, the intersection of spheres uh, represent a system of mirrors and lenses, or more lenses, I'm sorry, that either, uh, either expand or contract this universal medium to become, to become denser or more rarefied uh, matter, basically. And so 
his model. So there's no such thing as a, an electron electron particle. Okay. It can be considered like a, a cloud at best, but at the, the, the electric electron particle model, like it died a long, long time ago. And Walter Russell literally predicted the geometry of the so-called electron cloud way before, like he literally found it out. It's just a series of concentric rings. That's all it is. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just mind-blowing. So his system is based off of the vortex dynamics, the rhythmic balance interchange of centripetal and centrifugal vortexes within a cube. So a cube has a total of nine faces. He says everything in the universe comes to a sum of nine. It's the nine-stringed harp. There's nine total points on a cube, so eight for all the uh, corners and one for the center. There's nine planes in a cube, three equatorial planes, and then the six faces. The cube is the container, okay? The, 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 the faces of the cube, they're planes of zero curvature. It's their job to reverse in perfection any vortex motion that hits it. So it's their job to turn centripetal into centrifugal and centrifugal into centripetal as they bounce from cube face to the corner of a cube. And so the corner of the cubes represent those anodes like carbons and silicons as this maximum points of compression. The cube planes and faces, those are maximum points of expansion. And so just look at a room you're in. I want to just throw this out there. Look at a room you're in and the corners of the wall is where the darkness gathers mm-hmm. and it's more lit up on the faces of the wall. This is crazy. And then there's religions like the Islam. They, they walk around the cube as a form of worship. There's, I mean, it's in pop culture with the, <laughs> yeah, the, it's everywhere. the cube yeah. that the, the bad guys use in the Avengers. That is like the reality altering cube. It's somehow, I mean, there's, this is, this is like advanced esoteric stuff for sure. Big time. And, and I'm glad you just kind of brought that point up. And that's a, a more archetypal thing to discuss is the cube or some kind of cubic lattice is the matrix in a certain sense. It is what's binding electromagnetism to toroidal motion, binding us to linear time and linear perception. It is our cage, our minds, our mental cubes, and our mind, like all of this. People work in cubicles. Yeah, yeah, that too. So when I'm I'm talking about these cubes, realize that Walter Russell's model is scale invariant, that his model can be applied to the smallest structures of space, to the atoms, to the galaxies, but it's also an analogy for how your mind works. So it's, your mind is literally this system of mirrors that you just bounce off these electrical polarized uh, thoughts and it, we're just an echo chamber in there and trying to find that centering source within it and most of us can't do that so you have oh, the planes of zero curvature of the cube uh, later if we have time or in another podcast we'll, we, we'll, we will be talking about projective geometry and the role that has in describing like living biological stuff and there's different forms in there. It's a different type of geometry, but I consider 
the planes of this cube as infinite planes of projective geometry. And that's something that is outside of, tra- of Euclidean geometry, outside of normal space and time. It's a spiritual type of geometry and is uh, really embraced by Rudolf Steiner and his followers. So if you look at this picture, this kind of shows the vortex dynamics a little more. So you can see on the cube faces, like right here, you see those circles of rings, those rings, that's an inert gas. And then it spirals and compresses and wants to become a sun. It does that. And then it spirals and hits another corner of a cube. And it's this repeating system of vortex motion in a cube. And so here's another view of the inert gases kind of flopping towards this equilibrium plane. And this, this plane right here, we, uh, Later, we'll get into magnets, but that can be like the dielectric inertial plane. That can be the block wall of a magnet, in a sense. That's null. There's no emotion there. Um, This is probably the most complete picture of his work that you can see. So he has something called the uh, locked potential equation. It goes from positive 4 to 0 to negative 4. And it represents these stages of prolation and oblation of us of the the thought rings of the inert gases into a toroidal donut to become a sphere which becomes a toroidal donut to become the planes of the cube and all over again but this progression is harmonic and he relates different colors to it um also in his model i forgot to mention was centripetal and centrifugal is in his mind, in his perception, all this is a sex condition. Like sex, sex is a major precursor to how all this stuff works. There's male and female polarities. And so the male side of the spectrum, that's the centripetal generating side. And the blue female side is the expandive space creating um, side. So in his model, there's one universal medium and all the different phases and angles and expressions of the, of this medium describe the different crystallographic states of matter. So there's one, and there's other theories out there right now that talk like, uh, there's something like the EA quasi crystal theory that talks about, I think by Clee Irwin, that talks about higher dimensional crystals that are, have light projected to it. And that lower dimensional shadow forms are what we're experiencing. So it's kind of a similar but different picture as well. See, so amazing. (laughs) Yeah, like he just blows. Yeah. So, what did Walter Russell do with all this information? Why does it even matter? Like, is anyone even doing anything with it? Um, There aren't many people building his stuff. The people uh, from the University of Philosophy and Science, like I think there's one man, Darren Coulomb. Um, he has some excellent, excellent lectures, and they're probably the most scientific stuff you'll find on Walter Russell's material. But he's the only person I know who has been generating uh, or trying to reproduce some of Walter Russell's work. So as far as I know, Walter Russell had two different inventions. One was the optical optical dynamo, uh, optical, optical dynamo generator. And so he tried to recreate the dynamics of the sun with solenoids of copper coil and so to him stars and we're going to talk a lot about stars too stars are compressing the cold vacuum of space 
through the poles with vortex motion. They're compressing the coldness of space and then rating it out through heat into the through through its equator, basically. And so there's something about compressing the coldness of space through shape and geometry itself that allows his devices to work. And so this is one invention that is like, this is like some shape power stuff. So he had a device. It was at least two of these coils type things interwoven together. And that they didn't even need an electrical impedance or a drive to it. And that it could, it could generate heat in its core. Basically, they generated fusion type heats and ran their mansion on this technology uh, with this. And so the idea is that there's a set of coils that's compressing the coolness of space into, into this little sphere. And then there's another set of coils that go outwards. And then he had another system that was kind of similar, but in the center of those coils was a sphere of, it was a coarse sphere with water vapor in it. And he was able to change the inclination of these coils. Um, and I don't have the chart there, but he has like the angles for the different elements and stuff. But he would change the inclination of this device and the, the, uh, the chemistry of that water vapor would change. Transmutation. This guy created, he was an alchemist in a sense too. So these are the only two devices that I know of. Um, not many people have reproduced them. People would love to see it. Kids are like more than willing to try to eat the most Tide Pods and win that competition, but there's no one even yeah, thinking he, about this type of stuff. It's weird. Yeah, who can make the dankest vortex coil? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. just, the, uh, the objective is its own reward too, because... I mean, for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't understand why people aren't motivated to do more of this, myself included, but this is amazing. Exactly. So uh, I just want to, we're all, we're almost done with the Russell stuff. It was a pretty quick overview, but so this is probably the best quote from him. I love this. And it kind of sums up a lot of stuff. Waves of light do not travel. They re reproduce each other from wave field to wave field, field of space. I think the original quote says cubic wave field. <clears throat> the planes of zero, zero curvature, which bound all wave fields, act as mirrors to ref reflect light from one, one held into another. This sets up an appearance of light as traveling, which is pure illusion. So our polarized universe of electricity and his model we can experience it, but in terms of the grand scheme of things, it's illusory. It's a simulation of this stillness of this uh, spiritual universe. And so you can imagine that there's this cubic lattice work that extends throughout all of creation. For lack of better context right now, you can equate this to like the Planck scale or something like that. It is not that. But for for reference, for to make a picture in your mind, like draftsman paper, where it's yeah, all yeah, these yeah. square, like this, yeah, Perfect. all these cube squares. And just imagine, and I've seen this on cactus. Whether it was I imposed this on my own mind and experienced it or not, like that, who knows? But um, you mean peyote? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah. So imagine this lattice work, this cubist lattice that extends everywhere through everything. So. It represents what I call like the holographic flutter of the universal standing wave. It's like the vortex motion from one cube gets transferred to the next cube. 
And everything that happens in one cube happens in every other cube because there's only one center in the whole universe. Okay. So what happens everywhere happens. And what happens anywhere happens everywhere. What happens anywhere shifts everything in the cosmos just a tiny bit. So these cubic wave fields are like these little containers that are bounding the spiral vortex motion. And that when one cube has vortex motion going in it, it lights up. It, look, it looks like a pixel. Uh, it is illuminated on your TV screen. And then it sends information to the next cubic wave field. And that, that interacts at that, that lights up as a direct response to the cube before that. And there's a man named Edward Dowd, Dowdy um, who came up with a different type of emissions theory. And this kind of sounds like it. It's like how different packets of light aren't conserved as they travel is that they are constantly re-emitted from smallest amount of space to smallest amount of space from every little perturbance in space that a cubic wave field occurs will change the way that that light is expressed. I don't think that made a lot of sense, but um, <laughs> it's complicated, but it's just like, it's a fractal. It's like a hall of mirrors. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. So if, so light itself isn't moving and we can get into the work of a man named Ken Wheeler in a little bit, but to him, light is like the rare fractions and compressions of a longitudinal perturbation, a non-transverse type of motion. It's yeah. So light is not something that moves light in itself is not even a thing. Light in of itself is an effect. Light is Light is a wave, but a wave isn't a thing. A wave is something that something does. Um, oh, it's like a whole language game too. But, yeah. <laughs> but, in the, but, in the, but in the end, light isn't moving. There's one universal medium that has certain pressure gradients set up in it, and it lights up like pixels. And it, it's like standing waves, um, standing columnar, columnar waves. Basically. So if we circled back around to the ether a little bit, like that's the thing oh, that's moving um or that's yes. the thing that's waving the wave isn't a thing the wave is a yeah, yeah. something the, the, that something's the, doing the, the wave is uh like the rare fractions and compressions of this universal medium if that makes sense uh i think so i think we're getting it yeah, <laughs> people and, are gonna and, listen to this podcast 10 times to yeah. make sure they and, get and, it i hope and, and there's gonna be other models that we're about to show that are gonna bring this stuff uh you know to home a little more. Okay. So Walter Russell, I mean, this man changed my game, uh, the way I thought about everything. Um, I've known about the ether for maybe probably four or five years before him, but I was really daunted to touch his work. But once I did, like, I just, I couldn't stop. Like you read this stuff and something just hits you to your core and, but it helps you redefine polarity in your mind. And so polarity is balanced by a neutral center. We live in a trinitized universe, a threefold universe in a sense. So everything is centered by something and that center is the same center everywhere. And so uh, Walter Russell is just, uh, he rocked my world several years ago, but he also seems to have given one of the most coherent primers for magnetism that exists. One of the best pictures for us to gauge our, our, our studies of magnetism on because with current models we have for it, like this guy came up with this stuff in the forties. Like, how did he know this stuff? I mean, he saw it. 
So, untrained too. I mean, he was not scientifically trained. Exactly. And he so, actually mastered the, the fine arts on his own too. I mean, mm-hmm. this was definitely someone that was inspired to say the least. Exactly. And so I, I'll like, if people from the USP or whatever see this, I, I will definitely get hounded for even mentioning the word ether and Walter Russell together because in his earlier works, he used the word ether. Then Lau came in and he shifted his language and stopped using it. And that was after he sent his stuff to mainstream scientists too. But he stopped using the word ether completely and used other words. And I think that just lended to more confusion. Rudolf Steiner, this man changed my life as well. He was the founder of something called anthroposophy. He used to be a theosophist. Theosophy was this uh, metaphysical movement that started from uh, a Russian mystic. Helena Blavatsky, and they kind of took over the world. All these scientists into mystical things kind of came to them, and they tried to form a new world picture, try to make basically create Buddhism 2.0 on Earth, and they're responsible for most of what we consider the New Age, but it's straight-up Luciferianism, like hardcore Luciferianism. But they were also responsible for using uh, child sex acts to power their lower chakras for... Uh, atavistic clairvoyance, meaning like uh, people like Annie Besant and uh, Charles Leadbeater. I'm glad you said that because I was going to bring them up for that exact thing. Like if you need any, if you need any indication that this is evil shit, just look into those two. Yeah, exactly. And so they wrote a book called Occult Chemistry and there's other people who've kind of rehashed this and done more work like that. But they discovered atomic structures with this form of clairvoyance. They had they developed cities by by uh, gaining by they siphoned the louche from many many prepubescent kids jerking off basically. Use that to power their atavistic clairvoyance, and then they would see atomic structures basically. And then they wrote these books called Occult Chemistry. Um, they found, they thought Jito Krishnamurti was their own Christ and tried to groom him as that. And he's one of the whistleblowers on this stuff. Yeah, he's uh, great. Yeah, Jito Krishnamurti is amazing. But he was, he was literally branded as their form of Christ and usher in a new age. And like he backed out of that and because, because of that. And so Steiner was part of not the crazy sex stuff, but he was part of the theosophy in Germany, uh, theosophical movement in Germany. He was one of the main people. And probably a lot of people involved with it were not involved with the, you know, high level Luciferian cult stuff. They were probably just roped in by the promise of esoteric awakening. And then, Mm -hmm. I mean, just like a lot of people get uh, corrupted by false gurus in the modern New Age movement. This has been a game plan to redirect the spirituality or create control the awakenings of humanity because humanity is always going through cycles of awakening mm-hmm. and it's all throughout the history. It's, it's part of the cosmic clock itself. And we're seeing all kinds of false awakenings right now. <laughs> Stuff oh, is big, big time. A big part of our current, big part of our current society. Big time. And so, yeah. So is Theosophy, like they brought the new age to us. They're the ones who got us all doing Kundalini, Hatha yoga. They got everyone channeling, um, talking with aliens, leading to a completely ungrounded spiritual state. Only concerned with what's going on up there, not down here. So Yes, it's Gnostic. That's what I was referring to when I was mm -hmm. saying the the Gnostic meme. Yeah, I got you. 
Yeah. So that's in, in a sense is Luciferianism. So um, anthroposophy um, founded by Steiner was, is a response to the work of Johann Wolfgang Goethe as well. Goethe was, he was a, a little after Newton's time, but for comparison, he was Newton's counterpart. Um, Goethe developed a whole different method of scientific observation. And this is another big thing that Steiner points out, is that the future of science is not just going to be through our radar detecting senses, like I talked about when discussing Russell, is that man needs to develop his higher senses, his higher forms of clairvoyance, into which he can objectively, through the, these means, measure what's going on, find how physical phenomena affect him on the soul level, and then bring that down into the physical sciences. It's a top-down view of nature. Um, and that's what Ether Force is all about, too. We're about grounding the archetypes, bringing the harmonies of the spheres back into technology today. So Rudolf Steiner talks about two major uh, evolutionary forces uh, present today. One's Lucifer. Uh, he says Lucifer actually are incarnated about 2,000 years ago. And then there's Arama, Zoroastrian type thing, um, that's supposed to be incarnating as we speak. But Araman is responsible for materialism, mechanization, complete grounding with zero spiritual sight. And it's the goal of these two forces to throw man's conscious evolution off track and to sidetrack it into something that the esoteric schools have called the eighth sphere. And so there's basically this astral envelope around the planet that represents a future Earth. If mankind takes the route of transhumanism, of becoming robots, of of giving in completely to this AI, 5G, Internet of Things that we're building, building right now. Right now, there's an, this infrastructure that is being built is basically a shape power antenna for this Aramana consciousness to become fully manifest on Earth. Rudolf Steiner says we aren't supposed to become Ludites in response to this. We aren't supposed to run off to the woods crying that the cyborgs are going to come after us. Um, Transhumanism is something that eventually is going to cut off mankind's ability to connect with his etheric body. Your etheric body is what holds the plans for your physical body, is what mediates the astral codes from the planets to the physical body through the endocrine glands. Our ability to tap into that as we become more mechanized becomes less and less and less. But he says we're not supposed to run away from this, that we're supposed to greet this head on, that we are supposed to climb as far into the spiritual reaches as possible and then ground those experiences, that wisdom, into our experiences on the physical plane and that we are supposed to engage this technology with this in mind. And that we, this is a battleground that we are not supposed to walk away from and that te this technology is here to stay and it's not going anywhere. So we stand at the precipice right now. We can let this technology own us, direct our evolutionary track to becoming mindless slugs in this astral goo known as the eighth sphere. Or we can all realize that we are geniuses, like Walter Russell said, tap into our own spiritual power and realize that there are a myriad of, myriad of ways that we can bring 
the spiritual nature of the stars, of the cosmos around us, into everything we build here physically, from architecture to our electronics to everything. We can change the way we do this, but it takes knowledge and it takes the internal personal experience to engage this as well and not just swallowing the soup that someone gives you. So he says this approach that we have to take is based on moral technology, etheric technology, literally engaging our higher senses to build structures and technologies that affect these higher realms, because that's where the real warfare is happening. And it's bleeding down through that. So Steiner gave a picture of creation that still serves as a model for a lot of the, what I study. A lot of the radionics people are into this, but I found correlations to Walter Russell's model too. He speaks of the word ether in a completely different manner than everybody else. Um, so Walter, oh, and I need to go back to Walter Russell just for a second. Those nebulous space gases, those inert gases, or the nebulous space gases, I'm sorry, those are probably etheric particles, okay? Those are the ones that are higher than helium and hydrogen on the mm -hmm. periodic yeah. table. Yeah, exactly. So Rudolf Steiner describes this course of evolution in which different forces come to fruition to mold how physical things are formed, how consciousness it acts with other things, and just how everything works, basically. And so in his model, he uses the number seven to describe processes. Um, I've thought about that for a long time, too. It's like every number has its own little story, but I've always thought number has to do has to deal with stages, with processes. Um, so he says that there's seven main stages of human evolution. The first stage, and you can imagine like a V, okay? So the first stage was in India, the Vedas. The second was the Zoroastrians, the Persians. The third was the Egyptians. The fourth, the vertex of that V was the Greco-Roman. And then across from the V, there's a resonance between the old civilizations and the new that will appear on this involution. So evolution, involution. So on that involution on the fifth spot, that's where we are. And we're echoing the Egyptian age. And then there will be a sixth and a seventh. So through each of one of these stages, there's going to be a different ether that evolves. Um, with every ether, there's a different element that is paired. There's a different physical force that is paired. There's a different type of dimensionality that is paired with it. There are different qualities, whether expansion or contraction, are, are paired with it. So there have been many researchers since Steiner who have tried to figure out what these ethers are. And there's a lot of different theories on it, different ideas, but a lot of them, you know, ha have a general consensus of it. So uh, my buddy Thomas Joseph Brown from Borderlands Research, like... I love that man. He has given me so much information. He's laid the groundwork for a lot of this stuff, but he made a couple of these beautiful graphics here. In the beginning of our universe, Steiner says there was no dimensionality as we know it. And when he refers to dimensionality from now on in this talk, it's not that space itself has a three-dimensional metric. It's that that man's mind due to our threefold nature has imprinted 
a three-dimensional three metrics to the space around us. So space is non-dimensional and our minds have made a 3D playground to interact with it. By threefold nature, I mean there are, are literal meridians that divide our etheric body. Once dividing the left and the right, the top from the bottom and the back from the front. And all these have different qualities associated with them, different types of experiences that you can hone into. And a whole different type of astronomy and astrology can be built off of this knowingness and this differentiation of how different directions feel. So Steiner science is an experiential science. So I need to keep reiterating that. So, yeah, and we even experience things that we perceive through only 180 degrees. You can only ever see half of anything at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true that. So um, in the first stage of evolution, he says there's basically zero dimensionality. There's this warmth ether and the element of fire. It's a non-kinematic motion that still evokes a sense of heat within any kind of consciousness that was experiencing that realm at that time. So that's zero dimensionality, no time. And then, and then in the, in the first, first dimension of space, he says there's the light ether and, and air. The second, it would be the tone ether, the number ether, or I'm sorry, the, the second dimension would be the tone ether, the number ether, the chemical ether paired with water. And then the final would be the life ether with earth, the earth element. We're currently in the, in the fourth stage. Or we have the four in action right now. And we're currently in that, in that V, we're on that fifth spot. So there's a fifth ether that's currently evolving and it's supposed to be called the Akashic ether. And there's two more that will bridge after that. So there in total, there's seven ethers, but there's four that are currently experience that can be experienced by modern man. So the, these shapes in themselves are like tatvas, like they're, they're symbols you can meditate on. They represent the overall dynamics, not the actual shape of it, but the way they kind of spin physical things into formation. And so an ether is like the opposite of a physical force. So with, with a, oh, so also each dimensionality is also ruled by a planetary system. So the warmth ether and the fire were ruled by the old sun known as Saturn, or I'm sorry, known as old Saturn, our old sun, basically. And then the light and air is dictated by the old sun. Then the tone ether dictated by the old moon, and then the life ether currently on Earth. Um, these are all represented to, or related to different physical forces as well. So the the ether, the warmth ether is related to physical heat. Light and air is electricity. Tone ether and water is electromagnetism. And so there's a distinguishment distinguishment to be made between electricity and electromagnetism that I will make later. And then some, some unknown force that we were still discovering in the subatomic realms and, and for, for the, uh, where we are right now. And that's what Aramon wants to tap us into, actually. This subatomic force. Um, so these have just become a model for how people are trying to build, like, Certain, certain technologies and techniques to manipulate the forces from stars, basically. So the ethers 
they're like this pack. They come in this package. They have an element that mediates the ethers, which is this force that comes from the periphery and acts at the center and uh, meaning our physical experience and that the physical forces emanate from the center of our physical experience and emanate towards the spiritual periphery, the firmament, if you will. And so in Steiner's overall worldview and this he tries to show how the signals of stars affect everything from embryology to morphology to agriculture to, I mean, literally like everything physical and animate has a access and antenna for these uh, stellar signals and, and planetary signals. I'll just so, throw in real quick. The ancients knew about this. If you go to places like Newgrange in Ireland, they've got, ruins where there's a chamber that captures just the light from one star at one particular time of year. It comes in through a perfectly aligned shaft and what they were doing with that energy. I don't know, but there's examples of this in the ancient world of this knowledge for sure. Absolutely. And so in Steiner's picture, there's something known as like a, the spiritual firmament It's this, this membrane that, separates or you can call it the veil or whatever that separates the higher non-physical realms from the physical and it's this membrane that these higher spiritual intelligences literally imprint their thought forms that get sung by stars into modes of vibration that planets can intercept and stars can intercept the stars act like a prism give it out to their planetary system and then the planets receive that and then send that to the to to moons and to the the beings on the moons and the planets and so forth and it keeps going and going and going. So the there's these forces known as the formative forces within the astral realm. Astral is basically the, the word for star. Um, but there's these formative forces, these thought forms from intelligent beings that guide how the ethers, elements, and physical forces will interact with each other. So there's, um, yeah, there's a whole medical science behind, behind uh, how these ethers relate to the body and all of that too. But in general, that's this overall worldview. Um, there have been a lot of different people who verified his stuff to one degree or another. Um, a few of them I will mention. Um, let's see. One per, so one person who's taken it super far. Th this is incredible, and he, he's one of the people who's drawn Russellian parallels to uh, Steiner's work as well. But this is a periodic table that certain forms of it can actually be used as a homeopathic remedy in biodynamic farming. So what that means is that all right, so this is a, his chart of the elements, and he has a bunch of different ones, but this describes how the, the soul, astral, etheric, and physical levels form a chemistry. It's so incredibly in-depth, but there's, there's images of this without all the lettering that you can place water on. And depending on the intent and target that you're going to give this water to, that water will absorb the given element from it. And we're going to get into homeopathy and how to program water and all kinds of stuff later. And that will make a lot more sense, but like a physical diagram of chemistry that has 
physical effects on water. Like that's pretty freaking wild. Um, it reminds a- me too of the Wilhelm Reich concept of things radiating out from the core to the surface, as opposed to being higher and lowers. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Um, let's see. Here's a couple pictures. Um, I have, a, I have a book written by a radionics uh, practitioner who's deceased, David Tansley, but there's a way to actually uh, photograph and video the etheric realm, uh, at least certain dynamics within it. But the different motions of the ethers was cataloged. Wow, this is pretty weird. Uh, yeah, exactly. Pictures. Yeah, exactly. And all the etheric uh, pictures you see, you're just like, what? But yeah, but um, so so there was a woman named Lily Kaliska. Um, I'm going to start putting a lot of her articles on my website, actually. She was one of the people who really hammered in the idea that there are planetary forces that can affect us here on Earth right now. Uh, She did all kinds of crystallization experiments. Um, She would have different like gold, lead, silver concoctions put together and have filter paper set up and just have the solution run up the filter paper. And she would time the crystallizations of these solutions to coincide with certain celestial events. And she repeatedly, she did this for over 40 years, tons and tons of images of this, of different crystallization patterns or or crystallization patterns that seem different because of their timing. That doesn't make any sense at all from mainstream academia. Like if you, the idea of repeatability of an experiment, if you grow one crystal here, that crystal should grow identical under the same conditions, right? So time is another condition. And so she found that when, you know, different planetary orbits were uh, in their height or different lunar uh, uh, orientations, all that stuff would give radically different crystallization patterns for all of the stuff. And that supports the idea you're talking about with Walter Russell that really there's only one thing happening in like one cube and then it's just fractally multiplied out to a bunch of far reaching variations. Exactly. And so what we can get into later is uh, that the emissions from planets and suns and stars, like, yeah, they have a transverse electromagnetic component and that might just because it be because of its interaction with our atmosphere and magnetic fields, but they have a primal emission, a prime emission that is not electromagnetic, that is faster than light. I'm talking about morphic codes, Rupert Sheldrake, Sheldrake type stuff. Like he came up with the idea of the morphogenetic field, this informational bubble that basically keeps tracks of habits or codes that are responsible for how your morphology reacts to the environment. So this is all, and I I think the big lesson to take away from my whole talk is like, there's information coming from the stars that we can tap into it. And that bringing this information into our technology is the way that we bring moral technology and combat this aramonic force, basically. And another thing you can say about the technology is that the, the, a combat of the harmonic force, a, a method would be to recognize the technology as plagiarizations of spiritual innate natural abilities that humans 100%. have. And then so once you have a technology, instead of 
looking at it as this is the only way I'll ever achieve this end, realize that, well, if we can do this through technology, then there must be some way to do it on a natural way. A hundred percent. Everything that's ever been built by man or will be built is only going to be a simulation, only going to be trying to do what we have this organic inherent ability to tap into. Like we're like, we're the ultimate radionics machine. We're the ultimate dowsing tool. We're the ultimate shape power device. Like we are it. And we just got to tune in and that all these technologies that I'll be talking about, they're just reminders. They're tools, they're training wheels. And that is it. They're helping. They're there to help us tap into the stuff to refine our skills. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to walk away from it. It's physical. We can't hold on to it. We're going to have to embrace our powers fully on the spiritual realm. I think that's the only way. Yeah, that really reflects what we talked about with researcher Michael Wand a few weeks back. You might be interested in that conversation. We gotcha. It's a synchromysticism type of conversation, not so much in the science, but he has an incredible uh, long, long research tunnel where he's showed the origins of the computer technology industry and how they connect to occult rituals mm-hmm. around the Susquehanna River. And showing the, he shows the etheric pathways that reflect the neural pathways in humanity and how everything from the veins in your body to the rivers and waterways on the planet connects to these cosmic highways of, of uh, informational tendencies in the macrocosm. Really amazing. Right on. I'll have to look him up. So uh, just a few more things about Steiner. So like everything he talks about is how the constellations, the Zodiac and the sun affect our physical body and, um, and how we can anchor that stuff in. So there is the agricultural system of biodynamics, that's spiritual farming. Um, he gave a series of preparations uh, that you can make compost out of basically, but you use these preparations in a different way. Like the first one's called biodynamic 500 or 501. I forget. And it's horn. It's a cow manure put in a horn that you bury upside down in a pile and have it ferment from the date of a full moon through winter or something like that. There's all these weird rituals with this weird, with, with, seemingly strange materials and then you can actually take those and make homeopathic remedies with them and then spray them on your crops and what that will be doing is is putting tiny little micro antennas on, on your plants and your property that are there to siphon or filter or absorb and transmit the information from particular stars to different parts of the plants then um, different times of the day relate to the d- different etheric flows through the plants. So like there's a time of the time of the day and there's different times, days in the week where you should play with the parts of the roots or play with the leaves or you should harvest a fruit. All that is based on the height of etheric activity based on or, or orbital arrangements, basically. The cosmic clock. And people have put that uh, biodynamic stuff to actual effective use in the last decades right i mean this oh, is yeah. not just theory it's really yeah, working no, it's, for people it's unbelievable and then so i also practice radionics and that's about to come up but um i'm part of an organization called the united states psychotronics association it's a bunch of radionics people and half of the lectures they have at their yearly conference they 
are farmers, people who use, they're biodynamic farmers, and they're people who use radionics to broadcast information that represents the biodynamic preparations to their crops. So there's ways to literally take the information of these compost preparations, extract that, run it through a very particular type of device, and then you can send that to your plants, soil, whatever, and you, you'll, your crops will react in real time. It's a real thing. And, and like I say, like when I talk about radionics, like plants don't lie. Like there's no placebo with plants. All right. So, uh, yeah, I'll do some uh, closing remarks. Yes. Okay. So uh, I'd like to thank everyone for your time and attention during this. I know it was long drawn out, but, you know, I'm trying to plant seeds here. And like I said, don't believe anything I just said. Go look this up. Email me. Part of what I do is I spend my time freely giving information to people. Is what I do. Consider me your cosmic librarian. There are tons of files already accessible on my website under the file section, as well as my Discord chat, which you can find on the on my website as well. Or just email me. Say you saw me on this show, and I'll help you out. Like this is about making this information prevalent, and eventually making documentaries, imprint journals, and all this stuff, and blasting this information out there. So. Remember that everything I've talked about is pointing towards your inner genius, your inner ability, your inherent ability to tap into source and to bring that into whatever you desire to create. There are technologies that we can implement right now that can strengthen who we are as humans and strengthen our, uh, our spiritual connections. And this is the antidote to transhumanism. This onslaught of mechanism, mechanization and materialization that is literally hindering our soul's ability, even more, every, every day, more and more, from tapping into itself. We're losing who we are as a species, and we're going to lose it all if we don't shape our shit up. So this is my opportunity to plant some seeds for you to question everything you've been taught, from the quantum nonsense that's preaching materialism as this metaphysical answer to everything to, I, I mean, I, I mean, everything we are just lied to on every front. So just think, reconsider everything you've been taught, check the definitions and the words of what you're learning. And that's a fundamental thing. Language is our prison. We live in a tower of Babel. So check our definitions. One rule we have as ether force is trying to build a universal communal language to discuss all these theories because we're just a bunch of different schools jabbing about the same thing and no one's agreeing on it. So remember that you are unbelievably powerful, that all these radionics and radiostasia tools just help you realize that you are the ultimate radionics machine. You are the ultimate dowsing pendulum. You are a unified field operator. You are a freaking UFO, literally. You can build your own light body. Realize how powerful you are. And it's time to stand our ground against this bullshit against humanity. Because if we don't, who the hell is going to do this? So thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it. And I really am looking forward to presenting more information for this podcast. Man, thank you so much, John. I love that. You're a unified field operator. It's <laughs> so true. And I mean, everything that... I've ever investigated that I took for granted that was taught to me in school or by culture wound up being 
basically the opposite was true of what they taught me <laughs> whenever I looked into it more deeply. You can't, you just can't take anything for granted. You, you got to start doing the spiritual science yourself, I'm myself included. That's why I'm really glad to be kicking off this hopefully uh, continual series with you. I'm sure it will be. And I mean, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Like I would be interested in doing a a conversation about the current scamdemic, plandemic, coronavirus panic, and how the the very notion of what makes people sick has nothing to do with the reasons that people believe in. You know, there's there's oh, so oh, yeah. much that we could explore, stuff that's practical. I mean, there is a lot of practical knowledge in this conversation. I will be making some adjustments myself and uh, I'm I'm excited to go back through and listen to this and editing and take down all the notes that I need of uh, stuff that I want to start investigating next in my personal life. Like this is a big level up moment for all of us, I think. And we're lucky to have you, John. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. It was my pleasure. As the man said, belief is the enemy of knowing. It even has the word lie in it. I guess we should believe in knowing itself and not in this dogmatic, ideologically charged thing that most people are labeling science. Really, really impressed with the scope of this episode. I've never probably published one as big as this with the plus extension factored in. This episode is probably going to hit the three and a half hour mark easily, which is pretty amazing. I've never had that much of a well-prepared guest before either. John was all over it. It's like he's been preparing for this his whole life. <laughs> and it kind of feels like he's been preparing for it for a long time because we've talked about having him on the show over and over again, just not quite ready, wasn't quite the right moment. Our schedules didn't line up, whatever the case may be. Since I started this show, I'm pretty sure I've known him before then. And I've wanted him on to talk about this kind of stuff. And I'm glad that it happened now because at any point before this, I would have known less about the things that he was talking about than I, than I currently know. I feel like I'm not confident about many of these concepts and research areas. But then once we got into the conversation, I was pretty familiar with a lot of the people that he brought up and a lot of their at least basic ideas. I think that the ones worth getting into for yourself, probably all of them, but the ones that have been really helpful to me have been Wilhelm Reich. Rudolf Steiner, haven't looked into Steiner as much as I could, but it hits home pretty hard whenever you can listen to his uh, lectures. You can check out audiobook versions of his writing. He was a very prolific guy, and many of his concepts are still in use today by alternative thinkers. Uh, another one that would be really worth looking into, the one we started out with, Walter Russell. Man, Walter Russell, he is something else. That guy will blow you away. If you have, could spare the time to check out some of his artwork, his sculptures, his paintings, he did it all. Like if there's one guy that I wish was still alive that I could have on Interverse because he's like the most incredible, creative, imaginative person that I can think of, it would be Walter Russell. I'd like a time machine for that conversation. But luckily we have guys like John carrying his ideas forward and he's not the only one. There is the University of Philosophy and Science or science and philosophy. I don't know which way it goes, but the website for that is philosophy.org. Matt Presti, the president of that organization has been on the show a couple years past, hoping to catch him for around two before too much longer. I think it'll happen. 
but this was this was wild i mean i feel like what can i even say in in closing to wrap this up <laughs> there's too many threads that need to be continued on i will be bringing john back on soon i'm really glad he had a good time <laughs> he didn't want to quit because he finally felt like he was warmed up but I know that we'll get right back into that flow as soon as we start recording again. And you should see the notes that he sent me, just the list of names and concepts that we didn't touch yet. It's huge. And any one of these areas could get a deeper, full episode explanation. So I'm looking forward to having him as a recurring character on this here podcast program for you guys. And if you like what he's doing, go check out Etherforce. Join the Etherforce group on Facebook if you do Facebook. If you don't do Facebook, good on you. And also, I hope that you enjoyed this episode's video ness. <laughs> I think that it would probably have mostly made sense without video, but it's really cool to actually have slides and visual aids, that type of material for the podcast. I'm working towards maybe making that the norm. We'll see. I mean, there's going to be a lot of conversations we have. Where we don't need visual aids, but at the very least, I'm going to see about making video content where the uh, at least you can see me and the guest talking for people that like that sort of thing. So if you aren't already subscribed on YouTube or Facebook, go ahead and do that. I appreciate it. And YouTube is not very kind to me about showing people my videos whenever they're published, like really bad, actually. <laughs> it's, I guess, what you call shadow banning. So if you wanted to be a super homie and help share the podcast episodes when they come out or click the bell icon on YouTube or on Facebook to get notified when something new comes out. That'd be great for both of us. I'd appreciate it. So if you aren't already a plus member, what did we talk about in that second hour? Actually more like second hour and a half. Well, we continue talking about Steiner a little bit and then we moved into Wolfgang von Goethe. I think that's how you say his name. <laughs> G-O-E-T-H-E, kind of a strange pronunciation. And Clay Taylor, he's an artist as well. Both of them had interesting information to present, uh, through John anyway, about the revision of the Roy G. Biv color wheel model. So color is a lot more than just that seven, uh, seven color spectrum that was discovered by, I guess it was Newton, putting light through a prism. We also talked about Wilhelm Reich, who I just mentioned a second ago, his discovery of orgone energy, his orgone accumulation devices, and his weather manipulation inventions. Really wild stuff. We talked about radiesthesia, advanced dowsing techniques for observing esoteric information and influencing energy in the environment and in objects, radiation detecting pendulums for mapping detrimental or beneficial qualities in the environment biogeometric mapping of energy spectrums and physical radiesthesia techniques to enhance your health and vitality, the problems with common shapes of organite and how they can generate a toxic negative green spectrum energy. And what the hell is toxic negative green? Well, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure on this one. I'm going to have to research this topic more, but I guess this uh, radios radiesthesia technique for detecting different frequencies has come up with uh, common research that shows that there's a sort of a shadow green is uh, part of like the it's like the uh, opposite end of the spectrum of the normal color it's hard to describe it's a low frequency though that thing things that are toxic that radiate toxic uh, emf and such they they have this negative green spectrum energy 
interesting. You can see it in the plus extension. He shows like some charts that explain this and he gives more detail about it. That's one that I want to learn more about. Also about BG3, which is uh, kind of the opposite. It is a positive energy emission. And he demonstrated some technologies that emit BG3 and transmute harmful vibrations and cleanse auras. We also talked about the science of radionics and devices for storing and broadcasting vital energies and had a, a long discussion about Marcel Vogel and his crystal technology that syncs up to the radionic rate of the owner. So there's a lot there. If you're not a plus member and you want to become one, you can support the podcast with five bucks a month on patreon.com slash interverse and get the extended version of all the episodes and the big archive of all the ones we've already done. Very worth it. It's good for both of us. You support the show. I can do more podcasting as I get more support and you get the extra content. So win-win. Would love it if you did. This is definitely an episode worth signing up for Plus on because it's practically two episodes in one. If I had let him keep going, I would have had to just cut the episode in half and made it two separate shows. But I'm glad to have an extra big one for you guys right now because I was a little late in other episodes in May getting them out. So having a super show like this, it's great. It's great. And one thing I want to do after I finish this podcast up and... I have some free time. And before the next time we talk to John, I want to do some organite testing using these radiesthesia methods with pendulums to try to determine if any of the organite I've got has got a toxic negative green spectrum energy to it. Because that was one of the most mind-blowing things that John told me about. I've heard him talk about it before outside of this episode when we were just talking ourselves, but that organite is commonly made in a in, in different shapes that don't have a positive configuration for your aura and for the environment and can actually be, uh, I guess, death orgone energy instead of life orgone energy, or in some way, not clean, if that makes sense, and want to do more research about it. But if I can determine this just by simple dowsing techniques, and these techniques jive with other people's work doing this type of radiesthesia dowsing, then I'm going to go with that and I might move some organite out of my room, replace it. I guess I wouldn't want to give it away if I knew it was toxic, but maybe there's some ways to modify the organite or add some sort of sigil type uh, thing to it, sticker <laughs> that might transmute the energy. It's really amazing once you open up to the realization that everything is mind, everything is mental and begin to tap into that power. You can, I mean, all the uh, occult magical practices of the West have already got this type of thing figured out, but that using simple stuff like words and, and uh, symbols and physical sigils that can be put on things, you can actually change the environment. You can change your consciousness, consciousness, you can change energy. So that's part of our gift as human beings that we have the ability to make these shifts to our environment to take the perfection of nature and make it just a little bit more perfect exalt it as it's known in the alchemical lore the alchemical process so i'm going to do some testing of not just the organite that's in my environment but also different electronic devices <laughs> not that i need much confirmation that some of the stuff i have like the big computer and the wi-fi router and all that are emitting harmful frequencies i think we know that but 
Also, make sure that if you're getting into this stuff like I am, don't go crazy about it. Realize that we can only make one shift at a time. And one important thing that John brought up was that you can do all the radionics you want. You can do any kind of anything you want. And there's no quick fix for a lack of personal responsibility for combating the things that we might do to ourselves that are not healthy, that we have a habit of doing habitually addictive behaviors. So keep that in mind, myself included, (laughs) but you guys too, that we really need to work on multiple angles if we want to improve our willpower, if we want to enhance our powers of imagination, if we want to be more energetically vibrant, healthier. We can't ignore one thing. If it's the most obvious thing about your life that needs changing, then obviously that's got to be done first. But maybe some of this stuff like the radionics can help with building that willpower to make the positive changes. But it's weird. They all seem to lump together. Like you're either on an upward momentum or a downward momentum, if that makes sense. In my experience, that's how it is. Whenever I have one good habit that I'm holding on to, it makes it easier for all the other good habits and they kind of all coalesce together and vice versa. If I fall into a recurring bad habit from my past, if I bring it back, then other ones start sliding in. They're all, it's all a frequency thing. So keep our frequencies strong, keep our bioelectric fields or our auras purified and cleansed and Definitely daily grounding practices and stuff like that are a good way to, at the very least, have a baseline for cleansing and do that regularly. Again, talking to myself because I don't always do that stuff regularly. But <laughs> yeah, I appreciate, appreciate you guys tuning in. Don't know why I went into that weird accent. It's hard talking into a microphone by yourself, believe it or not. But this is the path I've chosen. <laughs> And I'm really glad you guys have come along for the ride. Can't wait for next week's episode. Got lots of good stuff on the books, just like always. But damn, was this an awesome one. Thanks again, John. Make sure you guys visit Etherforce for more. And look forward to the next time that he's on, maybe in June sometime. And that's it for now. I'm going to play us out with some new music by my homie, Cadella. You can check it out at soundcloud.com slash Cadella. And this one's called Radio Magic. <laughs> Seems appropriate, right? <laughs> Radionics, magic. We're talking about all that stuff. So you just happened to drop this new track. I really love it. And I'm excited to play it for you guys. And I'll talk to you all soon. Much love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.